Well, good morning. How you doing? Good. <laughs> it's, uh, it's really, really good to be uh, back here this morning with my church family today. We've not been around for a few weeks uh, with um, holidays and the such. And actually, I've had the opportunity over the past few weeks to um, visit a couple of other Elim churches around the region and uh, see the sorts of things that they've been up to and, and worship with them. And it's been a really um, lovely time, but there's nothing quite like your home church, is there? Coming home. You guys are still very much my uh, favourites, honestly. I'm not just saying it. Um, so over the summer, we have been, uh, as Steve has mentioned, teaching and, and thinking about and praying into this series um, that we've called Breakthrough. And the plan is to, to stick with this for um, a couple more weeks yet. Um, I believe that, that there is still more that God wants to do in our hearts and minds um, through this series. So hopefully um, you're still up for that. And what I want to look at today, um, and probably next week as well, unless God drops something else into my heart, is the area of prayer. I think it would be... Uh, quite impossible for us to do a series entitled Breakthrough without spending any time looking at um, the importance um, of prayer and thinking about the kinds of things that we are praying for or praying into. Specifically today though, what I want to do this morning is, is look around the, the area of unanswered prayers. Unanswered prayers. What's happening and how do we respond when we feel like God isn't listening to us? For example, if this morning I were to pray for a brand new sports car, there it is, and it doesn't turn up on my doorstep with a lovely big bow on it, should I conclude that God doesn't love me? Probably not. He probably just doesn't want me to have a sports car. I mean, let's be honest, it's a fairly selfish prayer anyway. I don't need a brand new sports car. And besides, I don't think it would do my ego much good to be driving around in that thing there. Probably I could conclude that actually the most loving thing would be for God not to give it to me. But what about if I pray um, for something a little bit less showy? What about if I pray for a second-hand car and, and I promise to use it for good and, and not for evil, um, you know, like taking people to the hospital and stuff, and all the, the selfishness and the ego are removed, and God still doesn't answer my prayer. What should I conclude then? Maybe that he just wants me to lose some weight. I'd certainly be skinnier without a new car. But what about if I'm not praying for a car at all? What about if I'm praying for someone else? What about if I'm praying for something a bit more serious? Let me give you um, a couple of examples. While I've been doing my ministerial training over these past few years, I've had the, the wonderful privilege of getting to know a number of other people who are on the same journey as I am, serving in various churches around the region. And this year, one of my friends found out that he uh, and his wife were expecting their first child. And he told uh, me and a couple of other guys that we know down the pub one evening, um, who were the first people that he told. It was early days, and after a couple of celebratory pints and a little cheeky kebab on the way home, um, we stood 
together and we prayed for him. We laid on hands and we, we thanked God for the miracle and we prayed for his family and we prayed for his wife and we prayed for their future together. A few weeks ago, at the start of the summer, he messaged on our WhatsApp group to say that there were some issues and they needed to go and get things checked out at the hospital. And so we prayed again, separately this time, but earnestly, believing and hoping and praying that the baby would be all right and everything would continue as normal. But unfortunately, a short time later, he messaged again to say that there was no heartbeat and that they had lost the baby. I was heartbroken for him, absolutely gutted. Why hadn't God answered our prayers? A couple of years ago, another friend of mine, um, a similar age to me, um, with a young family, uh, collapsed at home and was rushed into hospital and put on life support. And everybody was praying for him, and they were praying for his family. And I went to see him and his family in hospital, and I stood next to him, and I prayed for him my best prayers that I could possibly manage. I prayed for healing, and he died. And the prayers went unanswered. And I could share with you many other examples this morning of similar situations where I've petitioned God for something that I thought was right and something that I thought was good and just, but my my prayers just didn't seem to go anywhere. And for those of us that have been walking with Jesus for a while, I imagine you have many examples of your own. Times where you have really prayed your socks off, but those prayers don't seem to have gone anywhere, or you haven't seen the result that you wanted. And it can be really challenging. It can cause us to ask some pretty searching questions. Firstly, of ourselves, we can say things like, well, was it me? Maybe I didn't pray hard enough, or I didn't pray long enough. Perhaps my, my faith, it wasn't, it wasn't big enough. Perhaps my sin somehow got in the way of God hearing me, me or maybe, maybe God just doesn't care about me anymore. And we can ask some big questions of God as well, such as, why didn't you listen to me, God? Did you not hear me? Why didn't you answer that prayer? I thought it was such a good and right prayer. How could you let this happen? And we read scriptures such as Mark eleven twenty four that says, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe You have received it and it will be yours. Or James 5.15 that says a prayer offered in faith will make a sick person well and the Lord will raise them up. And we can think, what went wrong, God? Did I not believe enough? Was was my faith not big enough? Maybe I've, I've misunderstood who it is that you are, God. And so my question for us this morning is how do we experience breakthrough in our lives, in our, our Christian journey when God appears to be silent? How do we experience breakthrough in silence? And so the first thing I want to say to you today is this. You are not alone. When we're experiencing that silence of God, we can often feel quite isolated. We can feel like we are the only ones that are struggling. We are the only ones that are finding it hard to understand why God has chosen not to act in a certain situation or not to answer a certain prayer. We feel like we're the only ones that feel that sense of frustration or perhaps anger about what's happened, but it's simply not true. 
If we can come to a place of speaking openly and honestly together this morning, I think we'll find that this is a shared experience by many of us who have been walking with Jesus for some time. But actually, there are examples in Scripture as well. Take King David, for example. Someone who's described in 1 Samuel 13 as a man after God's own heart. A great man of God, someone who conquered Jerusalem, who brought the Ark of the Covenant back into the city, the very presence of God with the people of God. He won victories against the Philistines and the the Moabites and the Edomites and the Milakites and the Ammonites and the Gigabites. Well, not the Gigabites, but all the other bites. And yet, despite his, his standing and despite his status with God, he experienced the frustration of unanswered prayers. Listen to his words in Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer me. Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. He's quite, he's quite dramatic, isn't he? A typical worship leader, I think. <laughs> Sorry, Tim. What about Moses? The guy who led the the nation of Israel out of Egypt, who gave them the the Ten Commandments, who taught them how to build the tabernacle and, and led them through the wilderness to the promised land. It says in Deuteronomy 3 that he pleaded with God to let him see the land beyond the Jordan, the land they had been promised. And God said to him, do not speak to me about this matter anymore. It was Joshua, wasn't it, that eventually led the people into the promised land. And despite Moses' fervent prayers, he died in the wilderness. And there's plenty of New Testament examples as well. The disciples often made requests of Jesus that fell on deaf ears. In Mark 10, James and John asked to sit at the right and left hand of Jesus in glory. And he says, you don't know what you're asking, lads. You don't know what you're asking. Another occasion when facing opposition in Samaria, the same disciples offered to call down fire from heaven. Have the people destroyed and Jesus just tells them off. He rebukes them. What about Paul who who prayed three times that God would take away the the thorn in his flesh, but God said, no, no, my grace is enough for you. Paul was imprisoned and he was flogged and he was beaten and he was stoned and he was shipwrecked on multiple occasions. And I just wonder how often in those early days of ministries he prayed that God would bring an end to his suffering only to see it continue day after day after day. And so when it comes to unanswered prayer, we're not alone. We're really not alone. It goes far as to say that we're actually in really good company. The Bible is full of examples of people who've experienced the silence of God. And I actually think we can learn quite a lot from the way that they responded to him. So how did they respond? Well, the first thing is that they recognize in that silence that they are not God. You are not God. Now, that might seem a a really daft Thing to say this morning, of course, of course you're not God. That's obvious, should be obvious. But sometimes we convince ourselves that we know what's best. And when the outcome of our prayers is not the scenario we imagine, we become frustrated that God has not bent to our will. That he's not fulfilled the desire of our heart. That he's not acted in the way that we have instructed him to do. 
But the problem is that our perspective is limited. Our knowledge is, is actually incomplete. We are not God. God speaks these words through the prophet Isaiah. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Despite all his suffering, Paul reflects in his letter to the Romans, Oh, the depths and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. His paths are beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And you see, whether or not God chooses to answer our prayers in the way that we want him to, he is still God. He is still the creator of all things. He is still worthy of our praise. Let me just go back to to Psalm 13 for a moment. After David has finished saying, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? He goes on to say these incredible, incredible words. He says, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for you have been good to me. You see, even when our prayers go unanswered, God's nature hasn't changed. His love is still unfailing. He is still good. He is still the one that loved us enough to send his son to die for us. He's still the one who has brought about an end to sin and death and destruction. He's still the one who's paved the way for us to be with him for all eternity. You know, sometimes our expectation of healing is that someone would be returned to physical health. But isn't God's ultimate act of healing that we get to be with him forever? In a place where there is no more suffering and no more pain and no more death. God's perspective is so much bigger than ours. His victory is so much more complete. Sometimes the things that we think are right and good are are, are nothing. They're just glimpses of what God ultimately has in store for us. Paul says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has conceived the things that God has prepared for those who love him. So even when David felt as though God had abandoned him and not heard his prayers, even though in that moment he felt that that God was just not listening, he chooses to worship God. He says, I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. He recognizes that God is still good. If we want to experience breakthrough in silence, the first thing we need to do is recognize that we are not God. And one of the best ways to do that is to turn to him in worship. When we choose to worship in the silence, we actually make a statement. We say that, God, even though I don't understand what's happening right now, even though this is painful, even though this is hard, I know that you are still God. You have not changed. Your promises, they still stand, and I will worship you because you are worthy of my praise, and you have given everything to me, God. You are not alone. You are not God. The third thing I want to say to you this morning is that you can trust him. You can trust him in the silence. I think this is possibly one of the hardest lessons that we ever need to learn as Christians. This is one of the hardest things to do as a follower of Jesus. Just because God has not acted in the way that we expected him to does not mean that he hasn't heard us. And it does not mean that he is not still in control. 
David says in his psalm, but I trust, I trust in your unfailing love. He recognizes that God's character is not someone who is indifferent, but someone who, or someone who doesn't care, but a God of love and compassion. The problem is sometimes when our, our prayers go unanswered, we begin to doubt it. We think that maybe God is someone that doesn't care. Maybe God is someone who is indifferent to our pain and our suffering. Maybe someone who, who really doesn't care, but that's simply not the case. I think maybe the most striking story um, in the Bible that illustrates this point is found in John 11. It's the account of Jesus raising Lazarus um, from, from, dead, from death. When he, and um, Steve actually mentioned it a few weeks back. Uh, I think it was the second week that we were looking at this series. But I want to just revisit it for a few minutes this morning because I want us to consider the story from the perspective of Mary and Martha. And think about all that they face. So it begins, um, as I said, in John 11, in verse 1. It says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. This is Mary and Martha's brother Lazarus. Jesus knew this whole family well. He, he really cared about them. Mary and Martha were long-time friends and followers of Jesus. He'd been to their home before. You might remember um, there was that time where he commended Mary for, for sitting at his feet and listening to him while Martha was kind of fussing around in the kitchen. And here John tells us it's the same Mary that anointed him with perfume um, and wiped his feet with her hair, which again she was commended for. Mary was someone who really understood what it was to worship God. She loved Jesus. And Jesus recognized it in her and praised her for her devotion to him. I imagine it was the sort of home that Jesus just loved to visit, the sort of place he loved to be around. And Mary and Martha, they both knew what, what Jesus was capable of. It's likely they'd, they'd heard about um, and possibly even seen some of his miracles and his healings. And so when their brother fell sick, and I, I mean really sick, not like a, a cold, it was him that they thought of first. This is serious. Jesus is the one that can help us in this situation. Maybe Jesus is the one who can make a difference here. And so this is what it says in verse 3. Is all right? You're figuring it out. It's all right. Shall I read it just so everyone can hear? <laughs> so it says in verse 3, The sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Their expectation, of course, here is that Jesus would heal him, that Jesus would return him to health. Perhaps they'd even imagined and talked about how he might do that. Maybe he's going to send one of his, his disciples to come and, and pray over and heal him. Maybe he's even going to come himself and, and, and lay on hands and heal him. Of course, Jesus only needed to pronounce the words and Lazarus would have been made well, returned to health. But whatever their expectation was, I imagine they felt that thing would, things would be okay if Jesus was by their side. And so the message eventually reaches Jesus. We don't know that Mary and Martha knew where Jesus was. It was likely he was at least a day's journey away. So maybe there was actually a few days where this messenger was searching for him. And eventually he finds Jesus. And he says, Lazarus is sick. And this is what Jesus says in verse 4. When he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. 
Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. So this is interesting. This is, this is strange. Jesus assures the messenger that Lazarus is going to be okay. And then John reminds us in verse 5 that Jesus loved Mary. And he loved Martha. And he, he loved Lazarus. And, and then we're told he stays where he was for two more days. If he loved them, why didn't he set off immediately? Why didn't he just finish what he was doing and just get out of there? Imagine this for a moment from the perspective of Mary and Martha. They've sent word that they're waiting for an answer or maybe just a change in the situation with Lazarus, but he's getting worse. Day after day he's getting worse and things are really bad now. It's clear that he has very little time left and they're, they're pinning their hope on Jesus and they're imagining at this moment that he's running to get to them, to help them, to save them, but he's not. He's absent. He's, he's missing, silent. And perhaps a, a couple of days later, the messenger finally arrives back out of breath and says, It's all right. I found him. Jesus says it's not going to end in death, but it's too late. Lazarus has already died. And Jesus, who claimed to love them, is nowhere to be seen. Why didn't he come back with the messenger? Can you imagine the, the devastation that they must have felt? Perhaps they had similar thoughts to those that I mentioned at the start. They thought, how could he let us down like this? Was it, was it me? Was it something that I did wrong? And Jesus must have known the pain that would be caused by his delay. He must have known the heartache that they would suffer at the loss of their brother. But he also knew that there was a greater work that needed to be done in the lives of his friends. It was a deeper work that could only come about through suffering and loss, much like the cross itself. I'm told in verse 17 that when Jesus finally arrives um, and Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days and many people have come from Jerusalem to comfort Mary and Martha. And there was a, a Jewish superstition at the time that the soul would remain near the body of the deceased for three days after they passed. But four days had passed. There was no hope anymore. None whatsoever. Lazarus was dead. It says in verse 20, that when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Perhaps the grief was just too overwhelming for her. Perhaps she was angry with Jesus. Maybe she felt let down. We're not told, but we can imagine. Martha takes a different approach, however. She goes out to meet him before he can even get near to the house. And she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But... I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. In that statement, just like David, there is, there is honesty in the pain, but there is also a trust and a faith in God. There is honesty in the pain, but there is a trust and a faith in God. You could have done something, but you didn't. But even now, I'm choosing to put my faith in you. And so Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answers, I, I know he will rise again on um, the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, no, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. You see, even though Martha didn't know why Jesus had allowed her brother to die, she chose to put her trust in him. 
to put her hope in him for the future, to believe in Jesus' promises even now. She trusted him in the silence. What about Mary? Poor Mary. It says in verse 28, After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said. He's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. And Jesus had not yet entered the village. He was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, they replied. And Jesus wept. Why does Jesus weep? I think Jesus weeps because he feels the pain and the loss of death. Because he really does love Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And even though he could have healed Lazarus and saved them some pain and suffering, what was more important was that they learned to trust him even after all hope was gone. It was more important that they learned to trust him even after all hope was gone. This wasn't an easy thing for them. Jesus took no pleasure in their pain. His desire was to bring comfort, to release them from their pain. Just because God is silent, it doesn't mean that he has stopped caring far, far from it. God knows the situations that we are in. He knows the pain we suffer. He knows the hardship we face. He knows it firsthand because he has experienced it in the person of Jesus. And then he died to free us from it. Paul says in Romans 8 that we share in his sufferings in order that we might also share in his glory. The story finishes this way. It says, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Sound familiar? Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor. He's been there four days. And Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. But I know that you always hear me. I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. His hands were wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Jesus said, take off the grave clothes and let him go. You see, Mary and Martha, they had expected Jesus to act in a certain way. They'd expected him to do a certain thing. And instead, Jesus did something completely different. He did a miracle that ultimately pointed to himself. He showed them that after all hope was gone, even when there seemed like there was no way, God still has the final word. I love what Jesus says before he performs the miracle. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And then it's, it's, like, it's almost like he adds it under his breath, isn't it? I, I know that you always hear me. I'm just saying that for, for these people that are here, that they might believe in you. God always hears our prayers. 
God always hears our prayers. He's promised in his word never to leave us or forsake us. Jesus said he'll be with us until the very end of the age. So even when we feel like God is being silent, we can trust his word. He has heard. And even though he might appear to be silent, the things that he he is doing are for his glory. We can trust him in the silence. And so here's my conclusion for us this morning. I think unanswered prayers are not God's way of telling us that he doesn't love us. I think they are, in fact, an invitation to go deeper with him. I think they are an invitation to seek him in the midst of our pain and our suffering and our difficulty and our hardships and whatever situation we might be facing and to recognize in that moment his sovereignty over all, to choose to trust him beyond our own understanding to put our faith and our hope in him and to worship him and to recognize that he is still God and that he is still good. I wonder if the band would come back and join me on stage. As I was preparing um, this word this week, I just came across an old poem um, that I want to just share with you as a I finished this morning. I'll try and do. I'm not Martin, but I'll try and do a good job of the um, of the poem. This is what it says. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colours. He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaves sorrow, and I, in, in foolish pride, forget that he sees the upper. And I see the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reasons why. The dark threads are needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern that he has planned. He knows. He loves. He cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Let's pray. Would you stand with me this morning?